0: To YE1 Spurs.
1: Merry Christmas, Spurs fans, and may the new year be more positive for the lives of us all after what has been such a difficult 2020. We, of course, welcome back loyal listeners as well as anybody tuning into our podcast for the first time. YE1 Spurs. He's now almost 18 months old and reviewed 34 years' worth of Tottenham seasons during that period of no football between March and June. Those summer pods are well worth a listen. 2019-20 season, right back to the 1986-87 season, is how many seasons myself, Sim and Peter covered. It was a wonderful project and something we're really, really proud of. Um, Both Peter and Sim are here with me, Ian Wallace, today. Sim, Peter, how are we both?
2: Yeah, I'm good, considering the
1: circumstances. <laughs> Peter, any any music news from you?
2: Oh, I'm just doing loads and loads of tracks and so for, for the Asian market, you know, trying to oh, uh, wow. tap into that market. Yeah. So.
1: Okay. <laughs> have you have you contacted Anthony Costa yet? Because you know he, he'd be great in the Asian market.
2: Yeah, that's on my to-do list.
1: <laughs> good man, good man. And <laughs> yeah. Sim, um, welcome. How are you getting on at Talksport? Obviously. Um, for our listeners, Sim is uh, working on the Simon Jordan, uh, Jim White show. So, uh, Sim, how are you getting
3: on? Yeah, fine. It's still churning out the the Monday to Friday. Got a little bit of time off over Christmas, uh, so yeah. look forward to that recharging. But yeah, it's all, it's
1: all going well, thanks. Brilliant, brilliant. And it's good Simon Jordan sticking up for Spurs as well, which we're loving. This episode here is, we're really, really pleased. Here too, we've got an absolute legend of White Hart Lane a man who represented Tottenham for a combined nine seasons over two spells, winning an FA Cup and a UEFA Cup along the likes of alongside the likes of Glenn Hoddle, Garth Crooks, Steve Archibald, Gary Mabbit and Ozzy Ardilis, among many, many more. Great to have you on board, Mickey Hazard.
0: Hi, guys. Pleased yeah.
1: to be here. Oh, that's, we're, we're really, really grateful. Peter, yeah. got a question to ask Mickey, I think, straight yeah, away. To, the
2: first thing I would say is that, there was a sort of swagger about that '80s team, the mid '80s team, and uh, I just—I just wondered what it was like, what it, you know—to play with the likes of, you know, Hoddle and Ardivas and you know, your experience of that, really.
0: Uh, yeah, no, it's—it's it's interesting you should say that. There's a swagger, but—and the reason I say that because I always feel that when you're a talented footballer, you always have a little swagger. Um, you know if you look at the the, the, the work of the game they sort of work um, but when you look at the talented players of the game they have that strut they have that swagger they have that belief that what they've got is something different something special and as you rightly say in that era we had so many top class and um, talented naturally talented footballers that although they're not they're not aware of having that swagger, um, everybody else is aware that they've got it. It, it's difficult to say, you know, what who is the best kind of player to play with because it, it, it's a matter of personal opinion. I prefer to have the players with swagger. I love to play. It was just amazing to be seen playing alongside Glenn Odell, who are dealers, two of the most gifted, talented um, footballers I've ever seen. Um, and certainly for Spurs, they were absolutely high in my list of all the all time greats. It was a joy, um, but alongside them, we had Archibald Crooks, as right, you rightly say earlier, Perryman, Chris Hutton at full back played with the swagger. Mm-hmm. And then we had Graham Roberts and Paul Miller, hard men, and, and, and other, Ricky Valey was very talented, Tony Galvin, Mark Falcon. There was many, many very, very, very gifted footballers. So playing in that group of players was an absolute joy, I've got to say. And I would, I would suggest that that would possibly rank, in my opinion, as the second greatest Spurs team ever. Uh, behind the 60-61 team.
2: Yeah, I've, I tend to agree with you. I would probably slightly embarrass you a little bit by saying as an experience of uh, going to White Art Lane. Uh, I was at uni at the time. It would be around about the mid-80s. And I was up in the Paxton Road, up in one of the upper tiers, with a couple of mates of mine. And there was another guy uh, just a few seats away. or, And I could hear him say something about... And he was comparing you to Hoddle. And he was saying... Well, you know, Huddle, he has a flash. But Mickey Hazard is more consistent. So, I mean, and this is, this wasn't coming from me. This was just coming from a guy that was
0: like a, a long side <laughs> uh, It's It's lovely. And often, often Glenn Huddle and Mickey Hazard's name sort of was synonymous with, yeah. with each other because we sort of got, or I certainly got compared to Glenn um, non-stop. And now, when I was 16, it was a massive, massive comp- compliment be compared to this unbelievable talent. So it was lovely at 16 and at 17 and, and as I was breaking through, but once you get through, you want to establish your name in its own right. So when people were still saying when I was 25, doesn't he play like Glen Oddle? Yeah. I was saying, no, I play like Mickey Hazard, you know? And yeah. um, But no, listen, when you compare to one of the greatest players ever to, to grace the white shirt of Spurs, um, that's, no, that, that, that's no shame. And um, I, I'm honoured that I was. Um, but I still wish that I'd made people say they're not all played like me. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs>
1: establish your own identity. I, <laughs> yeah. Mick, Mickey, uh, before before we sort of go on with the, going through the season, I just want to ask how you're feeling now. As you had a terrible time um, with COVID-19 during the summer, are you, are you back to full health now?
0: Well, I had um, a combination of things during the, the lockdown. I had four operations started out as a pretty minor operation, and then uh, graduated into a all-out serious issue. I, both my kidneys stopped working. The fourth operation eventually got it all working perfectly and, and took away all the pain. So that was great. Uh, in, in between the operations, I caught COVID um, in April um, at the height of it, which, which um, wow. while I wasn't scared and I wasn't worried about my um, long-term health, I was in a a very sort of it was like a very 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 bad flu, um, whereby I, I you know struggling to get off the bed, um, and and unfortunately for me every time when I sort of get the flu or I get very sick, my blood oxygen levels crash. Uh, I don't know why, but they crash down to 90, 89, and on this occasion they crashed down to 88. So when I went to the hospital. Uh, sorry, when I rang the doctor, he sent me straight to hospital and when they tested that my oxygen levels had crashed down to 88, bang, they sent me quickly to hospital and put me on a oxygen mach- um, a support machine to bring my oxygen levels up. Now, if they'd have known my health history in terms of even just getting a flu, I, 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 my oxygen levels crashed. They maybe might not have sent me, but I, it was fine. I went to hospital, I, I was on the oxygen machine, and then I got out next day, absolutely fine. And three or four days, I was really bad for the next three or four days. But then, woke up one morning, and it was totally gone. So, um, as I said, I never felt, you know, that I was under any danger or any threat to my life. I just felt weak, uh, like you do when you've had a bad flu, um, yeah. and, and and a bit hot and sick. But as I said, once I, once it went, I recovered instantly. I never had any. Long-lasting effects, I never had any, or not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Uh, my yeah. miss, my miss, missus keeps telling me that um, it affected the look on my face. She said, I should wear <laughs> a mask now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So, Mickey, we, we can crack on now through the seasons. I mean, you're a club legend in uh, in my eyes and pretty much most fans' eyes. Um, and if we may, we'd like to take you for a little trip down memory White Hart Lane from your time with Spurs. But obviously, um, you know... Why Spurs? I mean, you're a boy from the north, you know, we can tell from
0: your accent, you know, why Spurs? You know what? I'm a great believer in fate. Sometimes things in your life happen and you question why. Why why did this happen? Well, it was meant to happen. That's why. And, 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 you know, if you look back, that I was 11 years of age and uh, Wilf Dixon became assistant manager who was born and bred in Sunderland. He became assistant manager of Spurs under Terry Neal. Okay. Um, and he decided to set up a, a little, just a very small network up in Sunderland. And the Spurs scout called Ken Pedestan, um he came and watched me play. Obviously, like what he saw, he didn't specifically come to watch me play the first time, he just came to the game that I was playing in. Um, like what he saw, so he came the following week. And, I, if, if, and you might think I'm lying now when I say this, but he then attended every single game I played in for three years <laughs> wow. yeah for every single game he had attended for three years he, t- wow. he came to he befriended my dad he used to turn up on my front door, knock on the door, come in chat to my mum and dad he then invite me through his to his house me and my dad for extra training and everything uh, and of course he put so much time and effort into winning my dad and mum over that when, at the age of 14, because in those days, we couldn't travel outside an hour's distance to join a yep. football club. So it so befriended my mum and dad that at the age of 14, when you could travel beyond an hour, there was no decision to make. My mum and dad were absolutely hooked. Uh, and, and instantly, and, and despite the uh, the efforts of um, Sunderland and Newcastle and Middlesbrough, also Barcelona, Re Madrid and into Milan, and Inter Milan, <laughs> and Inter uh, Milan, <laughs> But despite the efforts of all the local clubs, there was only one club for my parents. And thankfully, it turned out to be the right choice. And while it wasn't always the right choice, because at the age of 16, when I came down full time um, without my dad, you know, every other time that I traveled down, I came down with my dad. We put, Spurs put us in a hotel. I trained with the first team at the age of 14, 15, I had an unbelievably great time. But at 16, when I traveled down for the first time by myself, The realisation that I was in this big white city called London not knowing anybody, living in digs and away from my family, it was incredibly tough. I got very, very homesick and and spent the first sort of six to ten weeks running off warm back to Sunderland and Spurs would come up to Sunderland and bring me back, etc. But in the end, in the long run, Spurs showed so much patience. Um, They ended up sending me home. So every tenth day they sent me home. Um, They paid my uh, taxis to to King's Cross, the train from King's Cross to Durham, a taxi from Durham to my home, and then they gave me money to give my mum and dad to look after me for five days. So every 15 days, I had five days at home in Sunderland. It showed how much they wanted me, number one, and number two, it gave me an opportunity to really take my time at settling in um, because I knew that when I came, I had 10 days away and then five days at home. So And after a year, I, I, I sort of stopped going home. I kept claiming the money off Spurs. Oh look, I'm gone on the <laughs> this weekend. They kept giving me all the, the train fare, the taxi fare, the money to go give to my mum and dad, and I wouldn't go home. Um, and that's, Brilliant. I was on 16 quid a week at the time, and they were giving me like 250 quid every really? single so, day. Daniel,
1: Daniel Levy would pick that up now, though. Don't no, yeah, worry about no, that. Get
0: away with it now, trust me. There's, there's
2: <laughs> a comparison there with George Best, actually, because he ran back to Belfast. Uh, like within weeks of arriving at Old Trafford, and there's yeah, I mean, come got,
0: on, come on. I mean, you shouldn't you shouldn't compare compare me with George Best. I was miles better.
3: Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so which, so which team did you support as a boy then? Like eleven, uh, uh, like before the age of eleven, were you a Sunderland supporter?
0: Well, no, to, to to be honest with that, Sunderland I, I, were in the second division at the time, or the old second division. I was a football lover. My dad brought me up to, to love the beautiful game. He had been working on right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot up, non-stop skills, turns, twists, passing, this, everything. Uh, so I loved the beautiful game. So that Leeds United team of the, 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 the sort of uh, late 70s, early 70s, were, were unbelievable team. Uh, Johnny Giles, Billy Bremner, hard as nails, but great footballers. So I sort of tended to support them until they, uh, obviously at the age of 11, Spurs scouted me. I knew that I was going to be joining signing for Spurs on schoolboy terms at the age of 14. Uh, they offered me apprenticeship at the age of 16. So I sort of more or less became a, a Tottenham fan from the age of 11, 12. Obviously in the 73 Cup Finals, but Sunderland v Leeds. I support Sunderland because it was my old town. But I always knew where I was heading. I knew that Spurs was going to be my club. And and while when you come to White Hart Lane for the first time and you're sort of in awe of your surroundings and then you sit in the Bill Nicholson's room. Wow. Uh, he's got his chair on an elevated um, platform. He's like <laughs> way, way above you. You're looking at him, up at him and he's asking you questions. And while at the time you walk through the gates of White Hartley in Oxford Way and, and you don't realise, or, or, or certainly I didn't, this is my home, this is where I should be, this is the chemistry, this is the, 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 the motto to dare is to do, or dare a for It's it's what I believe in. The way the game should be played. You know, we should take risks. We should um, try things. We should dream. We should dare to dream, not to dare is to do. To to do, you've got to dream. And the bigger you dream, the bigger you achieve. And and at sixteen, I wasn't so I I wasn't astute enough or, or clever enough to actually or or even aware enough to recognise that this was my own. And it wasn't until the age of 25 when I left that I realised that that was my own. So great decision from my parents. Ever grateful to them because here I am, 40 odd years later, still working at Spurs, uh, madly in love with Spurs. And sitting uh, and here talking about Spurs is, is so simple and easy for me to do. Um, uh, and as you touched on when we first spoke, Um, I have the same love for this club as you have, except yours is far greater than mine. Yours is far greater than mine, and I'll explain why. Because I'm very lucky, right? My love is an educated love. It's a love that's borne out by the fact that I've scored winning goals at White Hartley and on magical European nights. I've scored winning goals in semi-finals. I've, I've had the fans sing my name. I've been on the inside the club of the club. I've walked up the tunnel. I've got changed in the dressing room. I've been next to the great players and the great managers. And all the wonderful things that players get to do, I've done. So my love is borne out by that. That sort of education of knowing exactly what this football club is like and what it's about. Your love is unconditional based on the fact that that it's cost you a lot of money over the years. <laughs> you no, know, you take the the amount that you've spent going to games and to and from home and away, and you have did it unconditionally, without having the knowledge or the experiences that I've had at this football club. So I always say that a former player's love for the club is borne out by something greater than a fan will ever experience. Whereas a That's fan, a wonderful that love, yeah. he has the same love as me, but it's a greater love because he he loves from not experiencing any of those things and it's my ultimate wish that every fan could experience everything that I've experienced just to walk up that tunnel and walk out the, 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 onto the pitch to glory, glory, hallelujah. That is something that if you don't fall in love with this club when you're walking out on that pitch and the fans are singing and it's echoing out over the loudspeak and the fans are singing glory, glory, let me tell you, if you don't fall in love with this football club when you hear that, then you're not you're not human. So I I respect fans for their love because I think that it's borne out by pure love, as against loving something because you know exactly how great it is. Yeah, and that's educated wonderful.
2: love. Educated love. I love
0: that phrase. Peter, me and you have like you know we've felt the
1: the low points. So it's really it's wonderful, Mickey, to hear you sort of talk like that because that's just it's just a wonderful way to look at it. Yeah,
2: I just wanted to just go back a little bit. I always ask players this, but. Uh, what, what what point at school? I mean, if you're going back to the age of fourteen. Did you f- realise that you had something like a level above the normal kid in the playground or whatever? At
0: what point? My mum, always tells me this story, um, and I think probably is at this point is when I, when I realised that she said, as I came out of her stomach, I was keeping a football up seventy six <laughs> times. <laughs> so. so So maybe it was then. But no, there was a point, actually. Um, At the age of 11, I was picked for my town team and everything. But at the age of 12, my junior school, I was in the first year seniors, and my junior school were playing a top Irish team who'd come over and toured. And my junior school, they were two years above the junior school. So they invited a couple of the uh, uh, the, the sort of year-older players back. So they invited me back. I don't know if you can remember Kevin Dillon, Birmingham and Reading and that, they invited Kevin yeah. Dilt back too, so we, we both made it as footballers, so we were playing we went back as a year older and we were playing a year older, mm-hmm. um, so we were playing with sort of 10 year olds while we were 12, but we were playing against 13 year olds Wow! and this 13 yeah. year old touring inside from Ireland had won every single game um, on this tour, and, and they were, my school, St. Cuthbert's was at Unbelievably good footballing school. Lots of footballers were made there. One of the best schools in Sunderland. Um, and um, I was coming back and I played against this really good side from a year above, older than me, and, and I was playing with 10-year-olds. And, and uh, St Cuthbert's, my team, we won 3-2, right? The first defeat that this team had suffered. And I, yours truly, got three goals. Wow. So... And I remember my football teacher who'd coached me when I was 10 at the school and eleven. And he said to me that day, he said, wow, Mickey, he said, in a year, he said, I cannot believe where you're at today. He said, you were always good at in the junior school. He said, but you were a year later. You have surpassed everyone. You are so far, ahead. even Kevin Dillon, he said to me, even Kevin, who was a great 11-year-old, he said, you are so far ahead of everyone. I cannot believe the improvement. And I think that was the point where I realized you know, we all dream. I'm sure you had the dream. I'm sure we all think, oh, I'm going to be a footballer. I'm going to be a footballer. But the moment when you truly know that you're going to be one probably hit me when I was 12. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was no guarantee that I was going to be. But that was when the moment that it hit me that, hey, I've got what it takes to be a footballer, you know? So, yeah, the age of 12, I would say. I was two-footed. The ball could come to me any angle it wanted to come at. You know, could ricochet at any angle and I would have just put any part of my body to, to cushion it and cushion it to the, the point that I wanted. You know, Glen Oddle had one of the greatest first touches that I've ever seen. And you could ping a ball at Glen Oddle from three yards away to any distance, any angle, any pace, and he would adjust his body and, and make it a cushion to cushion that ball into the exact spot that he wanted it. Um, and he possibly had the greatest first touch of any player I've ever seen. But it was something that I had too. I could um, react instantly bang the ball was down at my foot no matter where it came or what pace it came that can be man-made you can work at it and improve uh, and, and you work and work and work and work at it till you master it but it wasn't something that I ever had to work at it just happened naturally with instinctive uh, I didn't have to think how to cushion to make my my body into a cushion it just happened um, and I'm certain the same you know I've spoke with Glenn on numerous occasions about it and he was the same he just happened. We didn't have to think about it. You know, other players have to think. Of, you know, when, if you're talking about making a, a full-blooded fifty-fifty tackle, I had to work really hard at it. I had to think, how do I get my body into position for this? You know, I would often arrive at the tackle and I'd be in completely the wrong position because I wasn't a natural tackler. So to control a ball, manipulate a ball, just that naturally instinctive. So uh, and that was a good indication that one day I would be a professional footballer. You
1: started, uh, you said, your first debut in 79-80 against Everton. um, And in that season, you played three games. And then you played, you didn't play that much in 80-81. You had a couple of uh, appearances in that season there. And why why did you not think you broke into the team that season? Or was it just the team was pretty strong that season?
0: Well, it was... Well, it was incredibly strong. Um, mm. And if you look at the, the two players that I was competing with, Ozzy Ardiles, Glenn Oddle, uh, and the third was Ricky Velia. Um, and I remember, 81, I mean, You know, I've got two World Cup winners and, and one of the greatest footballers you'll ever see, Glenn Oddle. But for instance, when I made my debut uh, in, in 1979 against Everton, we win 3 0 at Y.O.L.E. and I got voted man of the match. But before the game, I was, I was in the dressing room and I was getting changed. And I looked to my right and I've got Ozzy Ardiles. And I looked to the left and I've got Glen Oddle. I mean, and my mind was like, what What do they need me for? I mean, you've got Glen Oddle and Aussie Odele, you don't need me, he hasn't. So the, the team and the quality of the players in my position sort of slowed down my progress through to the team because I actually played very well on the On the I remember Peter Straves at the end of the 79-80 um, season when I played against Everton, I think it was... Or was it no Coventry? Joe Royal was playing for. Did he Bristol the- City? Was it Bristol City? I think. I mean Bristol City. Yeah, um, an unbelievable pass for Jerry Armstrong to score a goal. Forty-yard pass, dropped it on a sixpence, uh, at nineteen years of age, and 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 I did a body swerve. Steve Perryman I threw a throw into me, and I went to pass it back to him, and he actually went to receive the pass back, but I spun <laughs> out the way and deceived everyone. And in the dressing room after the game, I remember Peter Shreve saying, Mickey, that was as good a 19-year-old performance as I've ever seen. And I remember Steve Perriman saying, Mickey, you sent me a dummy tonight. He said, I was on your bloody team and you sent me a dummy. <laughs> then I went for it. you know. So again, it was a compliment to the team and the great players that was in the team that it took me so long to sort of break through on any sort of regular basis. Yeah, uh, that, that happened in the 81-82 season when I played 45 games I think I scored 11, 11 goals. Uh, yeah. Three winners, one nil wins in the League Cup against uh, Fulham, and West Brom in the semi final, and someone else. And I scored the winner in the quarter final of the FA Cup against Chelsea. And the winner actually, in the... if
1: we if we if we can go if we can go to that season, I just don't want to go to that season because obviously, possibly your greatest appearance in the eighty eighty one was on top of the Pops, obviously singing Aussie's dream. <laughs> oh, without
0: doubt. I mean, do you know what surprised me? if you don't mind me saying. Good. What surprised me was after that appearance that every record company in the world didn't try to sign me up. <laughs> 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 can, can, I, can I just start some really quick question there on the Aussie's dream? Because,
1: yeah. you know, a, it's a great Spurs song. It's wonderful. And you, and you were a lot on top of the pops with it. Do, do you do you sort of look... Who, who is the Spurs player who, who took it really seriously? Because there must be <laughs> one.
0: To be honest with you, the most serious singer of everyone. I mean, I was quite a good singer, to be honest, but I was a little bit shy at the time, so... I always was trying to let my voice drift into the background. But Glenn was a very serious singer, Glenn Ottle. They don't really. sit on the bus up to a, to man away games and, and sing songs. And, uh, and you know, the, the the duet, for instance, Diamond Lights for Chris Waddle, he did it. He was the one who instigated. He was chasing someone to do with Mickey, can you do a duet? No, I'm not singing, Glenn. I'm too shy. <laughs> you know? you know, and, and so Glenn was a very serious singer, the rest of us. It, you know, we went on... Um, the Blue Peter show and nobody could sing until they'd had three glasses of lager, you know. They were so embarrassed to sing. But it was great and, and I don't know if you've watched that um the clip, the Aussie's Dream clip on Top of the Pops. I don't know if yeah. you know, yeah. we, we were fans. with Pants people. Pants Yeah, I did you I noticed you you were standing next to. No, did you did you notice Pants people wanted to get all oh, get beside me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Obviously,
1: must have been your aftershave. Exactly. But we we, we we digress from football. Um, that's still my favourite Spurs football song, by the way. But 81-82 season, as you say, it was a wonderful breakthrough season for you. It was a brilliant season for you. And I just sort of want to concentrate. I mean, you played very well in the league that year. You scored your first goal, a brilliant goal against Nottingham Forest, where you chested the ball down and half-followed it in. Great goal. I just sort of want to concentrate on the FA Cup run that year because... Third round, you are pretty much really involved the whole way through. Third round, you were sub in the first game against Arsenal. Arsenal, yeah. And then we had Leeds at home, where you came on as sub and you were
0: involved in the goal, weren't you? Yes, I came on um, and my um, beat went past Ken, Kenny Burns on the edge of the box, clipped it to the far post, It uh, was knocked down for Garth Crooks to edit a volley in, wasn't it? Was it Garth Crooks? Yeah, it was. Yeah, correct, it yeah, was Crooks, in. yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I mugged uh, Kenny Burns off. I uh, went one way, he went for it. i come back the other way and I think he was bringing me a strawberry ice cream back at the time. But he's got <laughs> a hard, but it, so he's got a hard man, say, yeah, he was. Say, see you later to him because he'd have took me out. But uh, yeah, we won that. and uh, uh, you know It was a fantastic cut run. In actual fact, that year we should have won all four trophies. We were that good. Um, yeah. We had such a backlog. I think we played 65 games in that that season and Steve yeah. Perlman in all 65. But what you have to remember is we had smaller squads then. we didn't have rotational uh, and pitchers like we've got today. Um, so, uh, you know, me, for instance, I played 40, 45 games. My first full season in the team, I played yeah. 45 games. I mean, you know, that's, a, that's almost like a full season today. Yeah. Towards the end of the season, we almost... I, I, I genuinely believe when we played Liverpool in the final of the um, Milk Mil Cup, I think it was... Um, yep. If we'd have held on We were 1-0 up with a minute to go If we'd have held on and won I think we would have won all four Because it would have took the pressure off yeah. But we lost to Barcelona in the semi-final Of the Cup Winners' Cup And then we beat QPR in the final And we fell away in the league Because we ended up playing too many games Towards the end of the season uh, And uh, it punished us
1: I just I just want to go back to that Cup run though Mickey, Because we beat Villa the next round But then I just want yep. to talk about that Chelsea game
0: Yes yeah the Chelsea game I don't know if you know I don't know if you guys or I don't even know if the fans know the real story behind the Chelsea game right we got picked up at the hotel by a police escort right now I don't know if they were told to do this but they took us right into the heart of the traffic right so at at quarter quarter to three we were all three o'clock kickoff. we were sitting in Fulham High Road right yeah in the traffic jam. So we were having to get off the bus, stop the bus, go to the, bring all the kit, the skips with the kit and the boots up onto the bus and we were starting to get changed on the bus. We got fined by the FA for not having our team in in time. We, we got it in five minutes too late. We didn't, we got into the dressing room at five to three, off changed. We went straight out for the warm up wow. without a team talk or even the tin being named. And then, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, no, it was an absolute disaster. And if you remember, we went 1-0 down, went in with a Mickey Fillory free kick just before half-time. We are 1-0 down at half-time. We hadn't had a won, we hadn't had a team talk. We It was unbelievable. And then we came out second half, and we played probably 25 minutes of some of the best football you'll ever see. It was football made in heaven. We, and we scored yeah. three goals during that little spell. Uh, I got the third... Archie Ball got the first. Model got the second. Oddle's goal was out of this world. Yeah. Uh, it was a quick, yeah. quick interchange. It was an assist by you as well, wasn't it? Was it? By me. Yeah. Quick interchange, but it flicks here, flicks there, and then a volley from Model from about 25 yards. It was an unbelievable goal, and it was. It's it sort of, for me. It epitomised everything that that Spurs team was about. Wonderful, yeah. quick, flowing, creative, flair football. Um, and maybe explain why we didn't win the league also, because we should have won the league with that team um, and that squad of players. But when you play that wonderful, quick, flowing, creative, flair football, creativity is defined in the dictionary as something that can't be recreated at will. Um, And when someone's trying to stop you creating that style of play, sometimes it it sort of flounders. uh, And every now and again, we would flounder and lose a game that we should have won comfortably and ultimately in the end it cost us the lead but that was an amazing game um, we won 3 what and was two. it
1: like Mickey played, what was it like what was it like playing because there was a huge away following that day wow. people you know fans of the older older generation talk about there's you know 10 or 15,000 yes.
0: um, people yes. it was an incredible occasion um, an incredible performance the fans marching down the Fulham Road at the end of the game listen I come from the back streets of Sunderland. So um, I've, I've sort of been a bit of a back boy during my life. And, and, and the, the things that the ordinary punters love is the things that I love because that's where I came from. Of course, I was lucky enough and blessed enough to fulfill my schoolboy ambitions and dreams and be part of the actual action. But that doesn't mean it took away the backstreet boy in me where I could, I wanted to sing the songs that the fans were singing I want to join in the celebrations, jumping amongst the fans, jumping up and, and all of that. So to win 3-2 against big local rivals like Chelsea, get to the semi-final of the FA Cup, to be part of it was amazing, but I would have given my right arm to being amongst the fans, walking home from down to the Broadway station, singing the the Tottenham songs on the tube bone uh, celebrating together, going to the pub and singing all the names. It would have been amazing. Yeah. I Mickey, mean, M- M-
3: M- 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 if... Office. Mickey, if
0: if we had got
3: over the line in one of these title sort of pushes, you're talking like only just over 20 years since, what, 1961, which compared to what we're waiting for now is is absolutely nothing. If we'd have got over the line in maybe just one of them seasons, do you think we could have had a few more titles since 61?
0: Do you know what? You're absolutely spot on. One of the keys to winning things, and again, I say this with... A, a well-informed education regarding winning things. You know, till you get over the line, you know, you look at the recent past and, and Spurs Champions League finals, second in the league, etc. The hardest part about winning a trophy is to get over the line for the first time. Exactly. Once you're over that line for the first time, I remember in 81, I, you know, I was in the squad, but I didn't play. But I remember when we got over the line, I thought, oh, brilliant, I'm going to win a trophy every year you know, and of course we went back the next year. Then we went in '84, uh, and it sort of gives you a belief that when you get yourself into that position again, if you're in the semi-final and you one nil up, you just know that you're gonna. You've got the belief and and the knowledge that you know how to win. And then you get to the final and you win again. You know how to do it, and that's the thing that the team under Pochettino sort of lacked. They never got over that line. I genuinely believe that, and like we didn't get over the line in the league, as you say, if we had got over that line in the league, I genuinely believe that we would have won the league more often and and maybe Spurs as a club would have won the league more often during the period from 61 to today. And if you remember 81, we had to go to that replay. Yeah. Um, even though we were quite a superior team to, to, to Man City, we had to go to a replay because... Getting over the line was so difficult. Even with that great team, those great players, and possibly for me, one of the greatest cup finals ever. And Ricky Villiers' goal in the end, that won it, is synonymous with everything that Tottenham Hotspur Football Club stands for. You know, that if you could pick a goal to describe Tottenham Hotspur Football Club and you would choose Ricky Villiers' or Son's recent goal, that won the Puskas goal of the... You know, those types of goals... Epitomize everything about Tottenham Motspur football, football club, but yes, 100%. If we'd have got over the line in that title in the years when we should have won that title, um, I believe that maybe we wouldn't be on this long what is it now 60 odd years,
2: yeah, Mickey. What, what you're talking about, in fact, is a winning mentality, isn't it? When it, when it gets absorbed into the DNA of the club, and um. The problem, as you say, with Poch, and I've heard you say this before. If he could have just maybe invested a little bit more in those smaller cups, and just got that into our DNA, things might have been a bit
0: different. You know? Absolutely spot on. You know, you as a fan, you know, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a player anymore. I'm a fan, um, and I see it through fans' eyes. And 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 Poch spoke so much about the the the, the what, what what was it he called it? It was a forget what he called it, a programme?
2: Project, he called it. He used to refer to projects, project, didn't he? This, yes. It's
0: a project. You reach the stage where it's no longer a project. You reach a stage whereby you have to get over the line. My sadness, my sadness is that in the end, the the project cost them being top the manager. And, and again, it's, it's, it's one of my sadnesses about Spurs is that we lost a great manager because he didn't get over the line. But that in itself shows just how tough it is to get over the line because there's other great managers, there's other great players, there's other great teams that want to do the same.
3: Thanks so much for listening to part one of our Mickey Hazard Why You Won Christmas Trilogy. And come back tomorrow as we continue to map out the career of this absolute gentleman and Tottenham Hotspur legend.